have faith now, it will enable us to meet the challenges of each day. And then third, we'll see how important it is for us to endure in faith. And that uh, if, if we don't, then uh, we, we have no hope. Really an echo of what we saw last time. So now for our scripture reading. It's Hebrews 10, verse 32 to 39. This is the word of God. It's infallible. It's from God. He's given it to us for our help and edification and blessing. So may he, may he bless it as we hear it. Hebrews 10, 32. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Thanks be to God for his infallible word. So God has revealed to us great things about Jesus Christ as the one who was sent to save his people from their sins. When God has given such a wonderful testimony to us of his son that brings salvation to us, then we ought to believe what God has said. He's revealed it to us in so many different ways. We ought to have strong confidence in the Savior that God has appointed and that he commends to us and sets forth to us, telling us that there is no one like him, no one else who can save us from our sins. This passage is given to encourage you to have confidence in Jesus Christ, to encourage you to do so and to give you some help in doing so. So first, you see here that you are instructed to remember how your confidence in him helped you when you first trusted in him, when you first believed. Verse 32 says, recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Illumination, the day when you were illuminated, refers to the time when we first believed, when we came to understand that Christ was Savior and that we needed to be saved from our sins and we trusted in him. The lights came on. We had been in darkness perhaps before that. Some of you were illuminated when you were little children and you had the blessing of having that childlike faith that fully trusted in the Lord. And then perhaps as you got older, that started to erode a little bit. He's saying, remember that childlike faith that you had. And then others had more of a dramatic conversion that arrested them in life at some point, And they began to see the truth. He says, remember what it was like. Remember how you trusted in the Lord and, and how you looked at things in that day. It is the way of God when we were first enlightened to immediately put us 
to the test. Pastors expect this with new converts. Sometimes we warn them, say, you're, you know, you're going to be tested. It's not going to be easy to serve Christ. You take up your cross and you have to deny yourself and follow him. The testing comes in the form of sufferings that, that new believers must endure if they are to go on with Christ. As it says, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. You had that, that new zeal and that new faith and you were, you, were, you were willing to bear whatever came, whatever afflictions came in your joy. Our text mentions several kinds of suffering that are often experienced. First, the new converts are often singled out for scrutiny and criticism. They've made a change and people come at them and say, what are you doing? You know, made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations. I remember my conversion in university and my friends are coming in saying, oh, this is, this is just a phase. You're not going to go on with this. And you know, they're, they're going on and kind of checking and, and investigating. Reproaches include even the sometimes ugly things that people say about your new faith. That you are ignorant. That they are surprised that, that you could accept such things. Or that you are divisive. That you're ruining and dividing the family. That you are ruining your life. I remember a man who had been a, a heavy drinker and uh, getting drunk almost every day with his friends. And when he became a Christian, he stopped doing that. They said, man, you're messing up your whole life. And uh, he, he, he was beginning to serve the Lord and, and changing his life. They say that you're intolerant and aggressive. Some new, some new believers are even disowned by their family. We've heard, we've, we've known people that uh, were like that. I think about um, Rania Bailey, that uh, her father, Muslim, that he disowned her when she came to trust the Lord. Many of you, you know her. And there are all kinds of other things. There's, uh, they're disowned. Some are ostracized, just kind of put off to the side. And others are looked at as an embarrassment to the family. Think about Robert Whittison when he became a believer and his wife was embarrassed. They were both United Ministers in the United Church and they came to believe the truth and the gospel and they, his wife was deeply embarrassed about his faith. She was just really ashamed and didn't even know what to say. And then she came to believe as well. And she said, you know, the Bible says that women aren't supposed to preach. I can't do this anymore. And she left the ministry. Anyway, they, uh, they've gone on with the Lord. And of course, he's a minister in our presbytery now. But, um, you know, what a blessing. But the new faith that, that you know, Robert was willing to, to bear that because he, he, uh, he was trusting the Lord. He knew the Lord. Tribulations is the other thing. Reproaches and tribulations include pressures of various kinds that new believers faith because, face because of their new faith. Sometimes there are things like fines and imprisonments. Certain places you get uh, put in prison if you believe or, or even worse. Sometimes you're forced to make changes in your career because of integrity. Maybe you had a job that was full of deception and lies, and you can't do that anymore. Maybe you just have to change the way that you're doing your work, and maybe it affects your, your income. There can be losses in things. Sometimes you're dismissed from a place of work because you're, you're not acceptable with, with what we believe here as a company. You, know, we're, you're not, you don't fit with us anymore, and you're, you lose even a, a whole career that you had. 
This brings, of course, economic hardships, tribulations of various kinds. These are real things. We see people facing some of these things in our society today. Some cultures, it's even worse. The second thing that new converts are made, it says companions of those who are being persecuted. It says partly while you became companions of those who are so treated. So you were made a spectacle by reproaches and tribulations, and you became companions of people that were reproached and, and under tribulation. You are brought into association with people who are being persecuted, and that lays certain burdens and obligations upon you. So you come into a body, let's say one like in the New Testament, that's really being severely persecuted, and the people have been cast out of the synagogue, and People don't patronize their businesses and they don't hire them. And so there's economic impoverishment. And so you're a new believer. You come into that. You've got all these obligations that you, you need to help these other brothers that are maybe you don't have those things directly yourself, but other people do. And we saw how the believers in the early church would sell their houses and things like that so that they could help the people that were destitute because of their faith. And so you bear, even if you don't have it directly, your companions with those in a real way where you feel the, the, the weight of what is going on. The author, who uh, likely is Paul, I think this helps us to see that it looks like Paul the way it speaks here, the way he speaks here. But he commends the Hebrews for how they assisted him when he was in prison. Verse 3, for you had compassion on me in my chains. Paul often speaks of himself as one who is in bonds or chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. In other words, they took the, the burden of being within a persecuted people with joy and, and they gave gladly of their substance to help others and even to be associated with someone that was in prison. It's a dangerous thing to go and take food or other provisions to someone that's in prison and you're going to be associated with them. Maybe you're going to be brought into prison too for the same reason that they're there. So they joyfully did that. They took on the burden. So the Lord does this with new believers right from the, right from the get-go. The Lord has good reasons for testing new believers. First, it helps, out, it helps to weed out those who, though they were illuminated, are devoid of faith. The pressure comes and those who do not have real faith are out of there. Often within the first year after they make a profession. We see that a lot of times. People will make a profession. And usually within a year or two, if, it's not, if there's not, no real substance there, then they'll eh, and, and they're gone. It's a very sad thing when that happens. We, we baptize someone, and then later we have to remove them, even before a year or two is out. Second, it helps to, but it, but it purges the church. It, it, having this affliction right from the beginning, this test right from the beginning is helpful. Second, it, it helps to give confidence to the ones themselves who believe. When their faith is tested, they realize how valuable Christ is to them. And maybe they're losing their possessions. Maybe they're broken relationships and hostility against them, threats on their life even. They say, Christ is more precious than and they know that they're trusting in him. It, it verifies them within themselves that they, that they are truly, that they truly do know the Lord. It gives them a foundation 
upon which to build in the future. That, you know, I belong to the Lord. I, I laid down my life for him it, right from the very beginning. And I'm going to go on with him now. It, it, it provides a, a strengthening. Third, it presents a strong testimony to others of how valuable Christ is to them. Because they're willing, even though tried, to go on faithfully serving him without wavering. That's what, yeah, that's what unnerves persecutors. When the people are, they, they, they're, they're even killing them and they're, they're singing praises to God as they go. And they, they don't know what to do with it. It makes them, they realize, because see, people know that there's truth there. And they're trying to suppress that truth. That's why they have so much hostility against them. And the more that they go on testifying, the more they go on serving and will not be stopped, the more they see the value of Christ. He is valuable. And these people recognize it. And they live as if he's valuable. And it really speaks to those who are persecuting them. And it annoys them. Sometimes, of course, God uses it. And the persecutors become believers as well. That's a problem that governments have when they start persecuting severely is that Christians multiply faster than ever before because they see Christ is real. These people know him and they're trusting him and they're, they've, they've, they've been honest with the truth. They've come, to, they've come to receive the truth. Fourth, it encourages those in the church. When you see a new convert, you see their zeal, you see their faith, you see their willingness to suffer for Christ and you think, I got some cobwebs growing in my faith. I need to I need to go back to what I was like. I need to go back to that zeal. It, it can be very very helpful. I've always enjoyed that in our church when we have new believers and they're excited about the truth and you know you you want to you want to see that. Just remembering the way it was. Just just what this it it helps us to do just what this passage says. Remember how it was when you first believed. We see someone like that and then it stirs us up to remember how it was when we first believed and to go on with the Lord. It also gives, um, it, it gives an encouragement to us that they really do believe. Because again, we, you know, we're, after a while, if you've been around a while and you see, okay, there's a lot of people that profess and then they don't continue for more than a year or two. You say, oh, I wonder if, I don't know if this is going to last. <laughs> we shouldn't really be, but, but we can, it's, it's kind of a realism. But then you see them and they go through things. And wow, okay, they did this and they did this. They suffered this. They bore this. Wow, this guy's real. You know, he, he, really, he really means business. Fifth, it strengthens the new believers to fortify them for future battles that they will face. They learn what Paul refers to as hardness of a good soldier of Jesus Christ. There has to be a toughness. If you're going to continue in that early time when you receive those persecutions and that affliction, build muscle in you. It's like your basic training to, to help you to be able to endure the hard things that will come in the future. And sometimes it's harder things that come in the future. They come in a different way, but they can be harder than the things that came early on. Maybe it's a long standing thing of, of troubles and difficulties. And so let, let's look at that. What is, the, what is the reason for this endurance? What is the reason for this willingness to suffer? It is confidence that what they have in Christ is far better than what they left for Christ. Than the world, anything that the world has to offer them. Yes, they endure sufferings because they are confident 
that having Christ is far better than having all the world, as Jesus said. What will a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? They see the emptiness of the world and its promises and the fullness of Christ in his gracious kingdom. They see the people who rise to the highest places in the world and are completely disillusioned and end up wanting to commit suicide or addicted to drugs or, or whatever. This confidence is described in verse 34. We saw, the, the, we saw the first part of it, how they are reminded that when they first believed, then the author says, you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of goods. Then it goes on to say, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. I've got something better. So I gladly renounce this in order to have this. It's the recognition that whatever they might have in this world will not endure. That's what he's talking about there. And that theirs now is an inheritance that's undefiled and that will never, incorruptible, that will never fade away. That they've come to something that's lasting. That was a huge thing for me because when I was uh, younger, I would get really passionate about something for a couple of weeks and something else for a couple of weeks and something else for a couple of weeks. And I just pour myself into it. And then I get old and empty. And I, I remember when I first came in, I said, this is something that is never going to get old and empty. And it never will. It's the truth. There's confidence that the exchange that you've made is a good one. This is how they can joyfully accept the plundering of their goods. This is the way of the new convert. Remember that, that fresh and early faith and what confidence you had at the first. How beautiful it, it, how beautiful it is to see that kind of faith in a new believer. And this brings us to the next thing. You need that confidence now so that you will be able to endure now. You're exhorted. Do not cast away your confidence. You had that when you first believed? Don't cast it away. Interesting language, isn't it? It doesn't say don't let it slip away. Now, it does say that in other parts of Hebrews. That would be a legitimate thing to say. But this time it says don't cast it away. It's kind of making it vivid of what you're actually doing. Don't treat your faith like garbage. Don't treat Christ like garbage. It's something that you just toss out and say, I've got no use for that. That's actually what you're doing. When the storms of life come, don't try to lighten the load. Say, oh, I've got so much pressure upon me. I'm not going to follow Christ anymore because that's putting pressure on. That's stupid. That's treating it like that's the problem. Like, and it's true that that might be where the afflictions come from. But that's where you find your rest. You don't lighten your load as if you're emptying things on a ship that's sinking. And what do you choose to throw out? It should never be Christ. Don't cast him away. This language puts what a person does in that vivid light. Don't make euphemistic phrases. What are you doing? You're throwing away your confidence when you do that. You're throwing away your inheritance. You're throwing away eternal life. You're throwing away the only Savior. You're letting yourself think that none of these things are important and that they don't matter. It is to throw away the best things. In exchange for what? Solomon tells us, doesn't it? The world under the sun without God, all is vanity. It's all empty. It's like a puff of wind. It's gone. And it leads to everlasting misery. Dear believer, there are so many things 
that will try to rob you of your faith. So many things that will try to undermine your confidence. Satan will do that. Your flesh will do that. The world will do that. You're constantly bombarded and attacked with things that are trying to break down, wear down your confidence so that you don't have that strong confidence in the Lord that you had at the beginning, that you cast that off. Let's look at some of the things. There is weariness. I remember talking to a man who had served the Lord for a number of years and fairly zealously. And he said, I just, I just can't go on with this. And I pointed him to Moses, who went on for 40 years on the backside of the desert and then 40 years with the people in the wilderness. On and on and on, Moses went, keeping his eyes on the Lord. And this man said, I can't. I can't do that. And uh, that can happen to people. They can, get, they can get weary. They want relief. And they look for it from the world. They're not confident of the, that it's far better to serve on, to press on to the end. There is lust. You turn your meditation upon, from the glory of Christ and his kingdom to the desires of your flesh. It can be pornography, fornication, drunkenness, parties, drugs, excessive food, covetousness with riches. You set your eye on those things and you meditate on them and how good they are and set Christ aside. You don't look at his glory, the surpassing excellence of Christ to all those things. What's going to happen? You're off to these things that you have set your heart on. How does someone become an addict? They set their love upon something and they meditate on it and they think about it and they keep going back to it instead of turning to think about the things that are superior and excellent, the things of Jesus Christ. That's exactly, you, can, you could come to have a great delight in almost anything if you begin to to meditate on it and look at it as some great thing that you, you desire to have and that you're being deprived of. There is also shame and reproach of Christ. We already talked about that. You cast away your confidence to gain respect from the world. You begin to waver. I know of a, a theologian that was very faithful. He believed the scriptures and everything. And then he was a very gifted man. He, he had a, another friend that was also very gifted both of them, you know, became uh, PhDs, all that kind of stuff, and they were, you know, model students. But one of them began to leave certain things out that he knew were true. Why did he do that? He said why. He told his, fr his friend, asked him, why are you? He said, well, I would compromise my opportunity to have a position at this school if I said those things. And so, you see, he began for the reproach of believing things that are true that are not popular in the academic world, he reject, He cast Christ off. Now, he still says he, he loves Christ, and it, but he cast Christ off because he is not following the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very sad. You're embarrassed to say that maybe that God made the world in six days or to claim that Christ is the only way of salvation because that's not respected at your academy or, or your place of work. And so you start to waver on that question. You don't want to bear the reproach of that. Or you're embarrassed to say that abortion, homosexuality are sinful. So you, 
cast away your confidence in God's word. You say, well, I don't really know about that. This is, this is where it goes. You're, you're casting off Christ. And then there is failure. You've not been getting on well, even in your walk with the Lord. You say, I've been trying, and I keep falling, and I keep struggling, and I keep stumbling, and uh, you, your, your heart is dry, and you just say, I don't know about this. Is it all even true? And instead of going on and crying out to God for mercy and looking to Christ, you instead begin to question what you once held with great confidence. You go on, you go looking for support for your unbelief. And you'll find plenty. You'll find blogs of people saying, oh, I, I used to believe that. No, I learned that. No, no, no. And you'll find all kinds of support for your unbelief. And you will cast away your confidence. You'll find articles. You'll find all sorts of things. Now, if you go looking the other way, you'll find all kinds of things to support that. People that said, oh, this is what I used to believe. And then I came to know the truth. And now I'm set free in Jesus Christ. See, you don't endure. You don't continue in the truth. And then there's fear. Fear can steal away your confidence. You see our society opposing the gospel more and more. It used to not be opposed as much as it is now. There weren't as dramatic consequences that sometimes we have today. You see that your faith could lead to job loss or even fines and imprisonment. You're smart enough to see what is headed around the corner. And you begin to dwell on your fears instead of on the surpassing excellence of Christ. What's going to happen? Those fears are going to be dominant instead of Christ in your life. You cast away your confidence for fear. Bitterness can steal away your confidence. Perhaps God is giving you hard things and you start to resent that. A lingering illness, a difficult marriage, financial troubles, <coughs> a hard past that continues to trouble you. Maybe you've been hurt by someone. Maybe you've been in a nasty division in a, a congregation somewhere. And you dwell on that. And you, that bitterness churns up in you. And you're all about bitterness. You're not about the excellence and sweetness of Christ. You're about the bitterness and the hard things and what was done to you. And you play the, you play the thing over and over and over again in your mind. And you get more and more bitter and more and more hostile. You begin to focus on these things instead of Christ. And your bitterness swallows up your confidence in your Savior as he is revealed in the word of God. You don't like the way God has treated you in the world, so you reject him. When all the while, if you had meditated on what he has done for his people, you would have had an entirely different perspective. You would have seen that he sent those hard things in order that you who are so stubborn might turn to him. You would have been glad for the hard things in this world that help you to realize that this world is condemned because we would never acknowledge that this world is condemned if there weren't hard things in this world. We would say it's all okay. It's all good. We have to have the hardships or we would never even think about turning to God or that there was any need to turn to God, that we were sinners or anything of the kind. That's how we are. You need then... We, we, I could... I gave you six things there. We, we could do six more. You know, we could go on and on with this. But you need to hold on to your confidence and not cast, away, cast it away because if you cast it away, 
you will not be able to endure. You see? Isn't that what I just described? If you start focusing on all this stuff, you're not, you're, you're not, not building your confidence in Christ, not thinking about who he is, how trustworthy, then, then you're cast, you're, you're cast, you can't endure. You, you won't go on for Christ. It won't be long till you're gone. You will not go on with Christ because you don't trust him anymore. You'll not endure suffering and loss because you will not believe it to be worth it. Why should I follow him? Why should I do that, you'll say. You will not recognize that those in Christ had a better and enduring possession in heaven. The admonition is in verse 25. Don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Acquaint yourselves with the excellence of Christ. That's what makes believers love God's word. What are you doing when you come to the word? One of the things you're doing is you're acquainting yourself with the excellence of Christ and with God and his ways with his people. And as you, are, as you meditate on that and you're acquainted with that, then it feeds into that confidence that you need to go on in this world for the Lord. It sets you right in your faith. It shows you his surpassing excellence and beauty. What a dear Gracious, powerful, holy, loving, patient, gentle, merciful, righteous, wise Savior he is. We could expound every single one of those words and add more besides. Here is the one who left glory to come down from heaven in order to save his people from their sins, even though it meant that he had to bear the shame and reproach of, the, of, of our sin. Before the Father. Here's the one who loves the Father and can bring us to the Father that we might know Him and that we might love Him forever and ever, the one from whom we were estranged. Here is the one who is the fairest of 10,000, the one who is without spot or blemish. We need to know Him. We need to see Him. You need to retain your confidence in Him so that you can endure with Him, so that you can go on with Him. And you need to endure. So that you can receive the promised blessing. Because if you don't endure, you won't receive the blessing. Verse 36. For you have need of endurance. You need to endure. So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. So you see how this works. You need confidence in Christ so that you will endure. So that you'll continue in him no matter what the opposition. And you need to endure so that you can receive the promise blessing that God has for his people. Now that's the third thing that we want to turn to now. You need to endure so that you can receive the promised blessing. Make no mistake, he is coming. He is coming to judge the world. That's not something that is just talked about. That's something that is real. There will be a day of reckoning. Verse 37 speaks of his coming as a certain thing. I love this verse. It says, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Okay? He who is coming will come. That's, that's an that's excellent phrase to think about. It's a real deal. One day, whether you believe it or not, you will face him as a judge. He will judge the world in righteousness. There's no two ways about that. There is debate among the commentators about what coming this refers to. Some say it refers to his coming in 70 AD, which was future, of course, to this letter to the Hebrews, when he came to judge the Hebrew nation, the Jews, for having rejected 
all of God's servants, the prophets, over all the years, and then rejecting God's son when he sent his son. It was a national judgment that brought destruction on the temple, that destroyed the city of Jerusalem. It was a judgment that Jesus foretold that not one stone would be left upon another, that it would happen in the very generation that he was a part of, and it did at the hands of the Roman army. Of course, the beginnings of that, the fall of Jerusalem is said to be 70 AD, but the beginnings of that, several years before that. Jesus refers to the Son of Man, this refers to that judgment as the Son of Man himself coming in the clouds of glory. When God judged by using nations to judge other nations like Babylon or whoever, he is said to come in the clouds, to ride in his chariot of war, to bring about in his providence those nations that bring judgment upon the world. He also spoke of it as a visitation, that there would be a visitation of God, of judgment upon them. So these Jews, they needed to be ready for that judgment, for that coming of Christ, lest they be destroyed. Others say that this coming refers to his coming at the last day, at the end of the world. In that day, he will come in his body, bodily, and he will raise the dead and judge the whole world in righteousness, separating the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous. He will cast the wicked into the place of everlasting torment where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and he will bring the righteous into everlasting blessing. This is certain. It's as certain as anything. I'm inclined to accept the view of John Owen that this coming speaks of multiple comings of the Lord. That yes, it refers to his coming in 70 AD for sure, which was addressed to these particular people at that time. And his coming, certainly it refers to the ultimate and final coming at the end of the age. But that it also includes the time that he visits the world or this nation or that nation with judgment or blessing. Because all through the Bible, the prophets warn people what's going to happen in their day, in their nation, and they're, they're called to prepare for that and be ready for that so that they won't be destroyed by when it comes. In a society like ours, his judgment is going to come on our society. We can see it coming. He who is coming will come and will not delay. Our own nation is not going to go on. A lot of people look at it and say, oh, it's the end of the whole world. We don't necessarily know that. Certainly the end of our nation is going to come if we don't repent. But God has destroyed many nations before bringing that final judgment and brought them to an end. And he, he, is, going, he is beginning to do that toward us. His many comings are all harbingers of that great final coming at the last day. But we as a people of God need to be constantly ready for his coming, for his visitation in our day, as well as in future days. So he will not tarry. There's an appointed time for each visitation, and he will come exactly on time. And we need to know that he will come and not to doubt that. They will not be delayed, but will be in the time that the Father has appointed. The grand delusion is to think that he will not come. To think that even though he has come so many times throughout history, I mean, he came in the day of Noah to cleanse the world by water. And people go, oh, I don't believe that. Well, the people sure did believe it when it happened. He came at Babel to scatter the nations. 
he came in another way to Abraham to, to bless him and call him to be a nation, that he would become a nation for, for God. He came to Sodom with fire and judgment. That was just a local visitation of God. He came to Israel to deliver them from Egypt and then to judge Egypt and the people of Canaan at that same time. He visited his people again and again. He visited his enemies. We could go on and on. He came in the fullness of time to be born of a woman and to die on the cross that he might save us. He came in AD 70, as I mentioned, to judge the world. That's already happened exactly as Jesus prophesied. He told it before in this generation it's going to happen, and it did. He, he said not one stone would be left upon another, and it wasn't. He came in the 5th century to judge the Roman Empire that had persecuted his people. In the 400s, Rome fell under the hand of their enemies. Augustine spoke about that. He came at the Reformation to reform his church. We could go on and on and on. We need to pray that he would visit us today. Ask him to come even to bless this worship service. Ask him to come to deliver his people who are persecuted in places like China or Persia. And ask him to hasten his kingdom and come at the end of the age. Make no mistake. He who is coming will come and will not tarry. Make no mistake as well. If you do not endure, you will not receive the salvation that is promised at his coming. So we read in verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, same thing as not enduring, my soul has no pleasure in him. The judgment to be rendered will be based on whether we believe or not. The just have faith and they live by faith. The just will have confidence in God. He has confidence in God that what God says is true. What God promises is true. He will have confidence in Christ that he is the great high priest who saves The just person is the one who looks to him for salvation and therefore receives salvation because he's trusting in the one who saves him. If you're trusting in something else, you're not saved. That's just that simple. The just live by faith. By faith, they have righteousness. This is how the person became just or righteous in God's eyes in the first place, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. To approach God without faith in Christ is to be condemned. It is to approach God without the salvation that God has provided by the suffering and death of his son on the cross. It is to come to God without a covering for sin and to be judged according to your sins rather than the forgiveness of sins in Christ. The one who draws back, though, who rejects Christ, who turns away from him, is the one who professed, but who does not continue. See, a person doesn't draw back if they never professed. This is someone who came and said, hey, I'm in, and then they turn away. When their faith is tested, as we've seen today, it proves not to be true, but false. They go back, and they walk no more with him. Remember all the people in John 6 that came and said, Jesus, we want to make you king. You fed the 5,000. You can lead us into triumph over all our enemies. You're our king. Jesus said, no, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in my kingdom. Uh, you have to Basically, you have to trust me for salvation. And they said no, and they went away and walked with him no more. They started out with him, but they had no real root in themselves. So when the day of battle came, they turned back. They forsook him because they had no confidence that his way was better than the world. 
They loved this present world, and they lost their own souls. The dreadful words of God are, my soul will have no pleasure in him. That's what it says here. Interestingly, God doesn't technically have a soul, does he? It's uh, people who have bodies that are said to have souls. But when God says that, he's, using, he's speaking in the, as if a man saying that his soul, that uh, his whole being is opposed to those who have rejected his son. There is no way for them. They, he has no pleasure in them. They're, these words are ominous. They're, they're terrifying words. I have no pleasure in that one who has no covering for his sin, who has spurned my son. I have no pleasure in him, God says. Testing will come, and we need to be prepared to endure. And the way to endure is, interestingly, by faith in Christ. It's interesting because what are we enduring in? What what is it that has to endure? Our faith. And how do we endure in our faith? By faith. (laughs) <laughs> it sounds circular, doesn't it? You know, it's a glorious circle, if you want to say it that way. It's to cast ourselves upon him for salvation, knowing that he will save us and keep us. Our trust is in the Lord. It's not in our ability to keep ourselves. We cast ourselves on him. And when you cast yourself upon him, your confidence is not in your ability to keep yourself, but you're kept by the power of God through faith in him who is ready to be revealed. Someone say, you're, you're telling us that we must depend on God so that we will be able to continue depending on him. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. There, it's a dance, you see. Sovereignty and human responsibility, they, they, they dance together in harmony. They, they're not like enemies that go. You, you, God's sovereignty is the one that leads and we respond to him. But. We're, we're trusting in him to save us, and he's giving us faith to trust in him to save us. And we look to him to preserve us, and he gives us faith to continue to trust him through the hard things. And so, so we're sovereignty, responsibility, they go hand in hand and bring about the fruit that, that God wants in his people. And third, make no mistake, if, you're, if your faith is real, then what I was just saying, if your faith is real right now, you will continue in him. The people who don't continue never had real faith. They had a profession, but they never had real faith. If your faith is real, you've put yourself in his hands, and he is going to keep you. There are those who draw, those who draw back show that they never had faith to start with. If they had, they might go so far as to deny him the way Peter did in the heat of the moment. But they will not, if they have real faith, that seed of faith will remain. Jesus said, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And that's what he does for all of us. Peter still had that seed of faith, and he came back because that seed remained and revived again. In verse 39, Judas was different. He never had real faith. In verse 39, the author expresses his confidence in the Hebrews. Receive this letter that they are among those who have true faith. He says of himself and them, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, not those that abandon our faith, not those that go away from Christ. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now, likely he says this with assurance 
because what had he seen of these Hebrews? He tells us actually back in earlier chapters, what had he seen in them? That when they first received the word of God, they endured many things. He's just mentioned that in this chapter as well. So, of course, what he's saying is, you guys are the real deal because I've seen you bearing all sorts of things for Christ. And that makes it clear that your faith is genuine. Now, of course, it's not an infallible pronouncement that he makes here that not one of them will prove to be false sons. The apostles had co-workers that departed from the Lord after they had served with them and borne hardship with them. And they departed from the Lord because their faith was not genuine. A person can go a long way when they don't have genuine faith for other reasons. But it is a general statement that he makes about them that's true. People like you, he's saying, who have borne things for Christ and have suffered for his name, I have reason for confidence that you're not the kind of, you don't have the kind of faith that's going to draw back. You're not going to draw back. And that if you're genuine now, you see, what this is telling us, if you're genuine now, he would say even to them, they're not of those who draw back but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. They have a sincerity and have sincerely put themselves into Jesus' gracious hands for salvation, and they're presently trusting him to save them and keep them. And if that's so, he's going to save them and keep them. It's not about them, it's about him. Anyone who trusts with true faith is of those who will not draw back to perdition, but of those who are believing to the saving of their soul. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you really are trusting in Christ, you don't need to be afraid that you'll fall away because he'll keep you. You're looking to him. So what about you? Do away with uncertainty about trusting him. Lord, I give myself to you to save me. I have all kinds of problems. Maybe I believe, help, but help my unbelief. But Lord, I, I put myself in your hands to do the saving. That's what faith is. Say, Lord, I can't save myself. Completely dependent upon you. You've been set forth as Savior and, and God's holy word. You have come here. You've shown yourself. You have died on the cross for sins. I'm, I'm in your hands. I'm with you. I have got no other, nowhere else to go. If that's where you are, then you're among those who believe to the saving of the soul and who do not draw back. How important it is to have confidence in the Lord. We have need of confidence, as we've seen, so that we might endure. And we must endure so that we might obtain the promised reward from his gracious hand. Do not let anything rob you of your confidence. Remember all those things I pointed out that rob us. Fear, bitterness, all kinds of things. Lust. Don't let anything rob you of your confidence. You need it. You need confidence because you need the Lord. You'll see many examples of this enduring faith as we move on in Hebrews and get into chapter 11, where we see the examples of godly men of the past. Please stand and let's call upon the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, our God, how we thank you for the confidence that we can have in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is presented to us in your word as your holy son who came down from heaven to die on the cross for our sins. 
Father, it is a marvelous thing to see in your word how he was prophesied through so many ages and prophesied to come to a certain people and prophesied to do certain things when he was here and that he came and he did those things. And anyone who looks at those prophecies and who looks at what happened has no ground for denying any of these things. And Father, even more than that, we have the testimony even in our own conscience. We know that we are not right with you. The whole creation testifies to that as you have sent hardship and trouble in this world to demonstrate that. And we see, Lord, the, even knowing that, that we ourselves are not what we ought to be as people. And Father, we thank you that that testimony is loud and clear to every single person, whether they've ever seen the word of God or not. But we thank you and praise you, O Lord, that you have given us your word that confirms all of those things and that points us to the way of salvation. And we pray that we would make known this salvation among the nations and that we would urge one another to continue in this salvation and not to draw back, not to harden our hearts and turn away. For, Lord, there are those whose faith is perhaps not yet formed. And maybe it will be yet. But some of them who are in that state will never come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will depart from us and walk no more with us. Oh, Father, we pray. Have mercy, O oh Lord. We pray that you would, you would turn those hearts to you. Father, we look to you for you are mighty and powerful. We pray that you would give us grace. Help us to know, Lord, that, that yes... We are entirely responsible for whether we believe or not. And, Father, that we would not trip up on wondering if we are elect or that sort of thing, but we would rather cast ourselves on the one that can save us. That's all we have to do. And we pray that we would, O oh Lord. Oh, help us, Lord, and help our children and help our children's children and their children to go on with the Lord. Father, how we plead with you for your mercies to us. Help us, Lord, not to let anything come between us and Christ, not to turn our hearts to some lust or to some uh, bitterness or to meditate on, on the fears and reproach that we have or, or, or whatever it is. We pray, Father, that we would go on with our Lord considering him and his excellence and serving him and recognizing that all these other things are not important. Whatever we may bear in this world, we are here for you, Lord. And we pray that we would bear it gladly. Even as we're going to look at this afternoon, we pray, Father, that we would grasp these things. Oh, help us, Lord. We are so dependent on you. And we're so thankful that you call us to be dependent upon you. You're not annoyed that we're dependent upon you, but rather you're delighted that we come in faith and trust in you. For you are God and we are creatures. It might be annoying to have someone leaning on us in that way in this world that ought, to, ought, ought not to lean on us. But, Father, what a, what a delight it is to you, who are the most high God, to have your creatures come and be as creatures and to live for you, Lord, and to desire to have your fullness and your strength. So we, here we are, Lord, presenting ourselves to you and saying, Lord, have mercy on us, for we are all sinners and you are the Savior. Thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's prepare now to come to the Lord's table. Please be seated. Receive now the blessing of the Lord our God. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.